Chapter 25 of Mr. Wicker's Window by Carly Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. As soon as the night was dark enough, Chris loudly complained of not feeling well, of being hot and dizzy, and in no time Captain Blizzard had, as loudly, told him he was to go to bed on a cot in the captain's cabin. Captain Blizzard closed the door behind him, and in Amos and Ned Silly's hearing, told Mr. Finney he was much, very much afraid that just at a touch of the sun was coming down with a tropical fever. Chris remained alone in the cabin from that time. Soon, in the cool of the night, when the sailors at the Mirabelle set out in diggings into a cascade of fresh water that emptied itself into the cove at its farthest end, taking with them casks and barrels to replace and dish the dip's water supply, their deep voices swept back over the water to where Chris stood by the empty port of the captain's cabin. He was forcing himself toward the moment when he must board the vulture. His resolve was held back by his mounting anxiety as to how best to carry out what would be necessary, and his strong, natural reluctance to leave the Mirabelle. Leave it he must. He stood pondering on what shape to assume, and when he heard the cry of a belated night bird, and saw it coast by on silent wings to vanish in the night, he decided to take that shape. It took all his courage and determination, but this was the first step toward what he had trained for so long to do, and he knew he must do it, and do it once. The boy lo looked at last time around the cabin, then spoke the magic formula in his mind, and with sudden enjoyment in the sense of flight, he soared away from the ship out over the cove. The board swept twice around the Mirabelle, rising higher as it went. Below, the few lights of the ship had been carefully hooded away from the sea, and the bird, spiraling lightly on air currents, drifted out from land. The black bulk of the vulture was easy to find in the clearness of the night. She was riding an anchor close inshore, farther down the coast, and final boatloads of men were returning from the merchantmen, tearing the last of the spoils. Sweeping by toward the beach, Chris saw that most of the bandit crew were already drunk shouting and carousing around fires where they roasted wild creatures they had earlier killed. He noticed a few Tahitians stayed apart at the joining of the palm forest and sand, watching the coarse faces of the drunken men. The Tahitians, sitting so well into the beauty of their island, gold of skin and crown of flowers, carrying them with sails with dignity, were as far removed as could be imagined from the idea of pagan men. They contrasted sharply at that moment with those from civilization who in filthy rags of clothes and in disorder of gestures and voices staggered about aimlessly gorging food and drinking. The watching pagans glanced from the brawling pirates back a short distance down the beach where already a few bodies had been washed ashore from the fight. Their distaste and bewilderment were plain. Chris soared high above the din and the smoke of the fires, and then seeing Osterbridge Hawsey being rowed back to the vulture, followed after. Osterbridge Hawsey had two baskets at his feet. One was filled with cheerfully chosen fruits, and the other with the exotic flowers of the island. Hastily chaining himself into a green parakeet, Chris alighted on the rail of the vulture just as Osterbridge Hawsey reached the top of the ladder. Determined to make a good impression and perhaps catch Osterbridge's fancy, Chris, in his bright parakeet plumage, bobbed his head and sidled up and down the ship's rail, eyeing Osterridge Hansey with his head at one one side as he had seen parakeets do. The rumor succeeded for Osterbridge with a cry of, a cry of pleasure, declaring himself enchanted. I must have the little bird, he exclaimed, deliberately taking off his fashionable hat, even more out of place in the tropics than it had been on the Georgetown docks. 
he slapped it quickly over the parakeet, which allowed itself to be captured. This, Osterbridge Hawsey's own prize, became crow with delight. Clambering as gracefully as possible over the battle-scarred side of the vulture, he took the parakeet gently out from under his tricorne. A parakeet, as I live! He shrilled, sounding very much like a parakeet himself. My soul, what a prize! He railed on, entirely to himself as he turned out, for the sailors were not at all interested in the pet. Exhausted from the battle or drunk with captured wine, and all despising the fastidious ways of Osterbridge Hawsey, they paid not the slightest attention. They obeyed occasional orders from him, for they knew they would be whipped by Claggett Chew if they did not, and so hauled up the baskets of fruit and flowers, dumped them unceremoniously in the captain's cabin, and left as quickly as they could to rejoin their shipmates on shore. Holding the parakeet firmly, Osterbridge Hawsey tied a long silk cord to its right leg, fastening the other end to the arm of his chair so that he could closely observe his new pet. Chris did not disappoint him. As the parakeet, he played the clown for all he was worth. He strutted up and down and bobbed his head whenever Osterbridge Hawsey spoke, so that it appeared that the brightly feathered bird was in constant agreement with its ca his captor or he would cock his head to one side as if weighing one of Osterbridge's remarks in a truly comical manner. Looking about meanwhile in his black beady eyes, Chris saw that Claggett Chew was lying in a bunk against one wall, nursing his left leg where she had given a sword thrust in the fight. He was obviously in pain and perhaps feverish, and Osterbridge Hawsey's childish talk irritated him and bored him so that he turned his face to the wall. Light from the swinging lamp that Chris remembered for many weeks before threw black hollows in Claggett Chew's eye socket and a deeply lined face. Now and again he could be heard grinding his teeth at the pain of his wound. Barossa Ridge Hawsey, throwing his fine coat and plumed hat to one side, lightheadedly amused himself by trying to tempt his new pet with some fruit. Claggett! he cried, as if Claggett Chew could possibly be interested in a parakeet at this point. Do look what I have captured! This is my very own spoils of war, he crowed. Claggett Chew made an impolite noise and said nothing. Well, Osterbridge Hawsey gave a shrug as in answer to that noise. You know how I detest fighting. It is vulgar, messy, and noisy. I can imagine no possible good word to say for it. And I see no reason why you shouldn't or not have made them give up their cargo without a skirmish. Oh, he said in the remembrance. Now, a gentle, gentlemanly fight with the rapier is quite another thing, he went on. He smirked and made a face to the parakeet, who does it best to smirk back. That is a graceful and fine art. Refined and not at all degrading to one's character. No sound came from Claggett Chew. Osterbridge Hawsey rattled on, and Chris, pecking at the fruit, preferred him. Thought that sometimes Osterbridge Hawsey might quasi talk just as gaily to himself as he did to the unresponsive Claggett Shoe. Claggett, you're a man! Rose, Rose, Rose. Really? They're making an exhibition of themselves on the beach! Just as well there is no one to see but as a Aborigines. Quite revolting. How can you bear to associate with such types when you're so much above them yourself? But then. Peak, you must die, poor Claggett. I expect your wound smells a trifle. 
Look at Chu turn his face towards Osterbridge, pausing, his eyes blazing with rage and his mouth working with the fretful annoyance of an ill man, but he only muttered and turned away again. Do you know? His most delicate friend pursed, stretching out a long finger for the parakeet to perch on, which it was evident pleasure, it instantly did. Do you know, Cleggett, this near little creature seems to feel less and almost human. Quite touching. He paused, admiring the vivid colors of the feathers, which perhaps awoke a kindred feeling in Archibridge Hawsey, loving a fine display as he did. I shall give you a name, my little feather captive, he said and wondered. I wonder what would be suitable, something French, undoubtedly. He waved a hand and laced it, the fists fell forward, not in not overly clean frill. Louise, after the Guillaume no, that would be too great an honor for so small a belt. Gaudy though you are. I think Monsieur, after the king's brother. That's it. Little Monsieur, he broke off dreamily. To think that I once knew such a royal, such a distinguished man, he sighed reminiscently. Ah. For the first time, words came from Claggett Chew. He bit them off as if the saying of them cost him a very great effort. More extinguished than distinguished, I would say. Osterich Hawsey permitted a sad, condescending smile to cross his face, and he shook his fist at Cleggett. You, ah, Cleggett, you never knew him, you see. I am sure you would have liked him. Such charm, such distinguished. Oh, dear me, yes. A most unusual royal personage. Osterbridge Hawsey said, smiling happily at his parakeet. Most of them are so much alike. He singled out several fresh fruits, peeling some for Claggett Chew. Silence fell over the cabin except for Osterbridge Hawsey's delicately smacking lips. As he finished the fruit and licked his fingers one by one. The increasingly heavy breathing of Claggett Chew fell asleep in the distant sound of shouts and clamor from the shore. Osterbridge Hawsey made a pouting face at the sleeping figure of Chew, as eventually Osterbridge was bored. He went to the door and clapped his hands, but no one responded. But for the few men in the parakeet, the vulture was deserted. Osterbridge Hawsey came back into the cabin holding a bottle of wine, which he uncorked and poured into a glass. Chris, foreseeing what would follow, walked up to the back of his new master's chair where he hoped he would be forgotten, and tucked his head under his wing in case Osterbridge should look for him. Waiting for the right moment was the hardest thing Chris had to do, but he knew, as Osterbridge Hawsey drank glass after glass and his book fell from his fingers, that the right moment would not be long in coming. Mr. Wicker's Window, Chapter 25 End